Thank you. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2 as we continue our journey through what we know as the pastoral epistles of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And we are uh, into chapter 2 of 2nd Timothy, letters that uh, Paul wrote uh, to a young minister who was serving a church in the city of Ephesus. And uh, as I mentioned before, 2nd Timothy is... Uh, a letter that Paul wrote late in his life. He's in prison in Rome. He's under a, a sentence of death. He's waiting his execution. And it's quite reflective, somewhat emotional, as he writes this letter to Timothy. And we pick up with verse 8 of chapter 2, and we'll read it through verse 13. Let us hear God's word. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, Descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. For it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. And that is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much again for a time together as your people. In, in your word, and we pray your blessing upon it. And I pray that you would uh, be our teacher, by the Holy Spirit, you'd be our helper, our instructor, that you'd open our minds to see and to hear the wonderful truths of your word, but they would not just be things of which we think, but things that penetrate through our hearts and that change us and make us more like Jesus. And we make our prayer in his name. Amen. You know, history is uh, very important, especially in the, in the Christian faith. We have an historical faith. Uh, that is, our faith is deeply rooted in history, and it's based on historical facts. So it's essential that we look back. That we look back to what God has done. That we look back to what believers have done. That we look back to what the church has done. We are a part of one great work of God. It began with creation and the events in the Garden of Eden. has continued all through history and continues even into today. It's not as though what God is doing today in the church is somehow separate from what God has done in the past. but Rather, it is simply a continuation of God's one great work that he began so long ago. And that's why the Bible frequently calls on us to remember. Remember. You ought to take a concordance sometime and look up the word remember and see how many times we are called upon to remember things in the past. It's kind of like in our nation's history. You know, there are a couple of mottos to remember. Remember what? Remember the Alamo. Remember Pearl Harbor? 
There's just some things in our nation's history we ought to remember. And there's some things in the work of God that are essential for us to remember. For example, you know, the children of Israel were exhorted to remember the Exodus. That was a a significant time in their life as a nation. And God wanted them to remember what they were in contrast to what they had become and why that transition took place. In fact, he gave them the Passover to help them remember that great event. You and I are called on to remember the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to remember them and how God dealt with them and the promises God made to them and the way God kept those promises that he made to them. We are, of course, called upon to remember God himself, who he is, what he's done to remember God's character and God's nature and the way God has worked in the lives of his people. You know, we're even told to remember Lot's wife. Specifically, the Bible says, remember Lot's wife and her disobedience. And what happened because she disobeyed. It's interesting to me that the Bible often tells us things that God remembers. It's not just that you and I as God's people are called upon to remember things, but God himself remembers things. Why is the rainbow in the sky? Remember? It's so that, this is human language now, so we can understand it. But the Bible says that God put the rainbow there so that he would remember not to destroy earth by flood again. The main thing that the Bible says God remembers is his covenant. God remembers his covenant that he made with his people. Now the essence of the covenant is God's promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. God has made a commitment to us. And he doesn't forget it. But he remembers the commitment he's made to his people. And that's what gives us our great sense of assurance. Now I start there this morning. Because our text is really a call to remember. Look at what Paul tells Timothy in verse 8. He says, remember something. That's not exactly accurate, is it? It's not remember something, it's what? Remember someone. Remember Jesus Christ. Now that's one thing we seek to do in the church, isn't it? We try to be a Christ-centered church. And, And all that we do, we try to remember who Christ is and And what Christ has done, you know, just as God gave the children of Israel something to help them remember the Passover, He's given us something. This is a communion table, and He's given us the Lord's Supper, hasn't He, to help us remember certain things about Jesus Christ. Here, there's a specific 
admonition, exhortation, command Paul gives to Timothy saying, you remember, you remember something. You remember Jesus Christ. Now everything he says in this passage is colored by that exhortation and must be seen in the light of it. And so what I want to do this morning is take from this passage four things that Paul says we are to remember about Jesus Christ. And the first is that we are simply to remember the truth about Jesus. I want you to notice this morning very carefully what it is that Paul says specifically we are to remember about Jesus. He mentions two specific things. One is his resurrection. And the other is the fact that he is a descendant of David. You know, there's a pattern to our services. There's a reason we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15. There's a reason we read in Christ, or sang in Christ alone. It, it, we sing in that hymn of his death and his what? His resurrection. Up from the dead he arose, the song says. We're to remember specifically Christ, verse 8, risen from the dead and a descendant of David. You see, it not only matters that you believe in Jesus. It also remember, matters what you believe about Jesus. There are a lot of people, folks, who embrace the idea of an historical Jesus. Who agree, who would agree with you that Jesus lived. He's an historical figure. But whose ideas about Jesus are not what the Bible says about him and are not essential to salvation. Some say, well, sure Jesus lived. He was a, he was a great teacher. He taught great moral principles that are good for us to follow in life. Some say he was, a, he was a strong religious leader. Some say he was, he was a very compassionate man. And he was really in tune with the needs of other people. And he, he went about in his life doing good for others. Some say that Jesus was interested in social justice. Making sure the downtrodden and abused were provided for and taken care of. Well, all that's well and good. But it doesn't get at the heart of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And so Paul says very specifically to us, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. When you think of Jesus, the first thing you're to think about is not the things he taught or the example he set or the good deeds he performed, but you're to remember the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, why does Paul mention the resurrection here? Why not the incarnation? Why not the crucifixion? After all, it's the incarnation that shows us that God, Jesus is both God and man, God in the flesh. It's the crucifixion that tells us that Christ died for the sins of his people. 
But the Bible makes it clear that without the resurrection, those things become meaningless. It is the resurrection that proves that Jesus really is the Son of God. It is the power of the resurrection that proves to us that Christ accomplished everything He said He was going to do. That's why in the 1 Corinthians 15 passage we read earlier, and Paul is very specific about it. In 1 Corinthians 15, in verses 3 and 4, he says this. Again, we read it earlier. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he talks about His appearances. Then you drop down uh, later in the text... Uh, to verse 14 he makes it more clear and if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain you get the point don't you if Christ isn't risen I'm just wasting my time and yours my preaching is vain it's empty it's not worth anything But it gets even more serious. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. And you are still in your sins. But it real honestly, if Christ is not raised, folks, we are the biggest fools on earth. We are. What are we doing here? Because if Christ has not been raised, He's just another martyr who died for His faith. Just another religious leader who was committed to what He believed and suffered for it. And that's all you believe about Jesus. He is of no help to you. And that's why Paul says... Remember Jesus Christ and you remember Him in His resurrection. You remember Him risen from the dead because that is what makes all the difference. So when you're struggling with your own personal life, when you're struggling with your faith, you're struggling with your temptations, you're struggling with Life itself, you remember. You remember something. You remember Jesus. And he's no longer in that grave, but he has risen from the dead. He lives. And he lives not just in heaven, but he lives in you. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. But he also says, remember him as a descendant of David. Now, the way I see this is pointing us to the resurrection directs us toward Christ's deity. Saying that he's a descendant of David reminds us of his humanity. I said earlier we have an historical faith. It is rooted and grounded in history. The Bible makes it clear that 
the Messiah, Jesus Himself, not only was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but humanly speaking, He descended through a family line, and that line was that of David. The prophet said the Messiah will come from the seed of David. And in Matthew, there's this genealogical listing of names that traces the family of Jesus back through David. But it's not just the human side that the lineage points us to. It also points us to his deity. He is, folks, the long-expected, the long-promised Messiah. Jesus didn't just appear. He came in fulfillment of divine prophecy. God said he was coming. He is the fulfillment of all the longings and anticipations of the people of God. Paul tells Timothy, a man who's struggling in his ministry, Folks, they had problems in the church in Ephesus. You know, a lot of people say, let's go back to the days of the first century church. You don't want to go back there. They had their own problems. And Timothy was struggling. And in his struggles, Paul says, look, you remember something. You remember Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, a descendant of David. And then the second thing we're to remember is our commitment to Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the resurrection and the fact that Christ is the Messiah descended from David demands a response from us. And the response it demands of us is the commitment of our lives to Him. And you've got to get the order straight. We don't commit our lives to Jesus and live for Him and serve Him hoping that He will embrace us and accept us and and save us, but rather we serve Jesus and commit our lives to Him because He has embraced us and saved us. Our service to Jesus is one of response, giving back, not one to get or to receive. And Paul uses himself an example of that deep level of commitment in verse 9. Where he says, For which, that is for this gospel, I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. Do you catch that? Paul's commitment to the gospel led him to imprisonment. He was declared to be a criminal. For preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even to the point where he was under a sentence of death. Now not every believer is called on to make that kind of commitment. But every believer is called on to come to the place where they're willing to make that kind of commitment. Probably few, if any of us, will ever be thrown into prison because of our faith. But you must be willing for that to happen. 
Probably none of us will ever be executed, put to death, because of our faith. But we must come to the place where we are willing to do that. It's a good question to ask ourselves sometimes. It really is a test of our level of commitment. Would I be willing for someone to come in this church on a Sunday morning and put handcuffs on me and take me to jail because of my commitment to Christ? Would I be willing to face a firing squad, to be burned at the stake, whatever it might be, and stand true to my faith, committed to Christ? Those are sobering questions, folks. There are believers who have had to do that. God spare us that we would ever have to go through that. But if that would come, what would our level of commitment prove itself to be? You know, part of Paul's willingness to to get to that place, and sometimes you might ask yourself, how did Paul get there? (laughs) How did Paul get to that place where he was willing to lay down his life for the gospel? Well, part of it is, his understanding, he remembered who Jesus was and what Jesus had done. He remembered Jesus Christ descended from David and all that entailed. But also, you know, Paul understood that God would use him even in those kinds of situations. What did he say here? I suffer hardship even to imprisonment, but the word of God is not in prison. What Paul saying? Look, I'm in prison, but the gospel is not in prison. And Paul knew that God could use him even in prison to bring people to faith. In fact, you might remember that he wrote to the letter in the church, the letter to the church in Philippi, letter of Philippians. Paul was in prison then. It was an earlier imprisonment. And he said, my circumstances, that is my being in prison, is worked out for the further expansion of the gospel. Paul understood he was reaching more people in prison than he could have reached out of prison because of the testimony he was bearing in that time of persecution. You see, your commitment to Christ matters. And we must remember that our commitment to Him is important because God uses your commitment as people observe your faith in hard times point them to Christ. And then third, we remember that salvation is through Jesus and that salvation is through Jesus alone. Again, why was Paul so committed to the gospel? It's because he knew that without it, people were going to hell. The Bible is very politically incorrect that's why the Bible isn't very popular in some quarters of our society the Bible doesn't say it doesn't matter what you believe 
says it matters a lot what you believe. The Bible doesn't say that you can have any God that you want. Buddha, Allah, pleasure, money, power, and still get to heaven. The Bible doesn't say there are many ways to be saved and to be right with God. It says there are only one way to heaven. Jesus said it, didn't He? I am the way. You can say the only way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Peter said, there is no other name. None. No other name. Given under heaven among men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. That's why Paul was so committed to, to preaching the gospel. Because he knew that without it, people would spend eternity in hell. And look what he says in verse 10. For this reason, that is for the reason of the gospel, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation, here it is, which is in Christ Jesus. And with it, eternal glory. You see, Paul did not just suffer all this hardship for Christ. But he suffered it for Christ's people. Those whom he refers to in the text as those who are chosen. Or as the Bible says, the elect. Now. I've got your attention. That ought to remove from your mind any question as to whether there's any conflict between embracing what we know as the Reformed faith, embracing the biblical truths of election and predestination, and your zeal for evangelism. That's what people want to say, isn't it? You believe that God has chosen His people for the foundation of the world. Why evangelize? What's the point? What do they call us? The frozen chosen. Nothing frozen about the Apostle Paul. If there was anybody who embraced the Reformed faith, it was Paul. That's where we get it. He taught it. Ephesians chapter 1. God chose us in Him, in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world. I didn't say that. Paul said it. The Holy Spirit gave it to the Apostle Paul. He believed it. He lived it. The people, he laid down his life for it. Because Paul understood that the sovereign God used people like us to accomplish His eternal plan and bring people to faith. 
What does Paul say over in Romans chapter 10? Verse 14. Start with 13. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then he asks some questions. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him who they not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Paul understood that if the gospel wasn't told to others, they would never hear. They would never respond. They'd never believe. And they die in their sins. Why do we preach? Why do we send missionaries? It's because we know that without Christ and without the gospel, people are going to hell. Let's don't hide from that. It's what the Bible says. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope of salvation. And if we don't tell them, they can't believe. If they don't hear, they won't respond. And who knows who God will bring in your path to use you to share the good news of the gospel with others. I won't call names in here, but some of you know who you are. You tell me how God has opened opportunities for you to share the gospel, the good news, to tell others of Jesus Christ. When God opens the door, go through it. And then fourth, we're to remember the blessings that we have in Jesus. The blessings. We find that in verses 11 through 13. In, in, in this little section, there's, what we, there's another of what we know as Paul's trustworthy statements. There are five times in pastoral epistles where Paul says it is a trustworthy statement. We call them Paul's trustworthy statements, and this is one of them. And we believe these were truths that were commonly embraced by the early church. That's Paul was reminding them of. This is a trustworthy statement. You know this to be true. And we think that perhaps 11, verses 11 through 13 were either an early hymn that the congregation sung together or it was an early creed that the congregation recited together. But in it, there, there are four blessings, four parts to this trustworthy statement, four blessings. Quickly. The first part is in verse 11. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. Now that refers to the spiritual death that Paul talks about, especially in Romans chapter 6. Where we're converted, we die with Christ. We identify with him in his death. We die to sin. Paul says in Romans 6, 8, If we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. It's almost exactly what Paul says here in verse 11. If we die with him, we shall also live with him. Dying to Christ and dying to sin enables us to live to Christ and live to obedience. So it's a true statement. If you identify with Christ in his death, you will live with him now and into eternity. Another part is, verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. 
Jesus said, he who endures to the end will be saved. How do you know that you are really in Christ? How do you know that you really are converted? One of the primary ways is because you endure to the end. Because you keep on keeping on in the faith. Again, folks, you do not know that you are a Christian this morning because you walked an aisle one Sunday or you raised your hand after a sermon or because you recited a prayer that someone asked you to pray or because you met with the preacher or because you stood before the congregation. Too many people hang their assurance of salvation on one little thing they did that has no bearing on today. If you're converted, your life will show. And you'll continue to press on into faith. If we endure, we will reign with him. You know, the reigning with Christ in heaven is one of the great promises given to God's people. But those who endure are those who receive it. The third part, it's the only negative part in here. If we deny him, he will deny us. It's exactly what Jesus said, you know. If you're ashamed of me, guess what? I'll be ashamed of you. You deny me? And times get tough. Somebody says, you know Jesus. You say, well, I, you know. You deny me? I'll deny you. Those are frightening words. For Jesus says, and Paul says, if we deny him, he will deny us. That's why it's so important to wear your faith on your sleeve. Allow other people to see the difference that Christ makes in your life and to be open about why that's why that is and what Jesus has done for you. And then the other part, the last part, is in verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What a comforting phrase. What a blessed truth. Especially for those of us whose faith grows weak, those of us who have times where our our faith ebbs and flows where we don't seem to be very faithful you know the blessed truth is my salvation doesn't depend depend upon my faith my salvation depends upon God's faithfulness what does it say he remains faithful he cannot deny himself this book is true it's full of promises and God cannot deny himself or his word And even when our faith grows weak, even if you're like the man who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Or if you like the words of the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You remember something. You remember that even though your faith grows dim, God is faithful. His word is true. His promises are sure. And he will keep them. God said, and I think uh, Stephen referred to this verse this morning. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So what an important exhortation and admonition this is. Where Paul says, remember Jesus 
Christ. Remembering Jesus, thinking about him, looking to him. You know, that really is the answer to a lot of life's problems. When you don't have peace in your heart, you remember Jesus. When you're lacking joy in your life, you remember Jesus. When you're struggling to forgive that person who said something about you, or did something to you, you remember Jesus. If you are not content with where you are in life, you remember Jesus. If you don't have assurance of your salvation this morning, if you wonder if you died today, if you go to heaven, you remember Jesus. I can go on. The list is long, but you get the point. Remembering Jesus is so important for all of our lives. And so my prayer this morning is God would give us good memories. He would enable us to remember Jesus. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended from David. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It's just so true. And I pray that your word this morning be an encouragement to all of us in our walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The exhortation is remember Jesus, and we're going to conclude by singing a hymn about him, Lamb of God. Let's